0: Good morning once again, choir, another wonderful number, the Lamb of God, I I, I thought that's very appropriate in, in today's text, so a beautiful number once again. Um, good to be with you again, to be worshiping with you uh, on this, this uh, Sunday morning. Incidentally, uh, my wife snuck in the back, so I'm glad that she's here as well, it's nice to have her with me a, as well today. Uh, in uh, 2013, a man by the name of um, Wayne Dodge went to a church service in Plain City, Utah, and uh, he got there a little late, uh, the church was packed, there was some special events going on, and he saw an empty pew, so he slipped into it, and someone said, approached him and said, oh, I'm sorry, you can't sit there, I've reserved these pew, this pew for my family, they're running behind, could you find somewhere else to sit? Well, there were some words exchanged over that, and I don't know how the rest of the service went, but it so far was okay. But after the service was over, as they went to the parking lot, those two picked it up where they had left it off, and they started arguing a bit. Pretty soon, Wayne threw a punch. Uh, witnesses would later say that they think he was tried to run the man over with his car as he was leaving. Wayne Dodge was later arrested and charges, charged with assault from that. That's pretty drastic for a church pew. I mean, that's... Eh. If we have any visitors here today, I'm not trying to warn you, you know, it's, you're okay, you're okay, and I hope no one would, no one would be that covetous over their church pew. However, the fact remains that sometimes we can allow those traditions, we can allow those beliefs, those expectations that we have as we come to church guide us and sometimes cloud our vision, and sometimes get in the way, even, of worship. In today's text, uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. temple. That's the title we give to what happens in John chapter 2. We're going to talk about that. It's my hope that as we talk about Jesus cleansing the temple, that he'll do the same here today. That there will be a cleansing of this temple that's gathered here today, a spiritual cleansing, because sometimes it's possible that things could get in the way of our worship, just as he discovered. And that's my hope. But let's pause first, go to the Lord in prayer, and seek his blessings. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this time of worship and this gathering together of your children. Lord, I pray that you will hear our prayers being offered today. And that as we meditate upon your holy word, Lord, you will speak to us. You will show us areas of our lives that need to be discovered by you. That you'll love us, that you'll convict us, that you'll change us, O God. So that we might be more and more like your son Jesus in whose name that we pray, Amen. John chapter 2 is a story of Jesus really just beginning His ministry. Basically, He's an unknown. People don't really know much about Him yet. In fact, all of John chapters 1, 2, and 3 occur prior to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel even beginning. All they talk about is baptism, and then they just jump ahead and talk about later events. John gives us a very early glimpse of Jesus' ministry. He was baptized by John in John chapter 1. He goes into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days. is tempted by the devil. Then we read in John chapter 2 that he and some men that he had selected as disciples go up north to uh, a Galilee to a town called Cana. There, there's a wedding. You might know what happens there. They'd run out of wine. Jesus had turned then their water into wine. And even though that seems like a pretty amazing miracle, it is, it seems that only a few really knew about it because we read there in John that only the people who brought the water and took the wine had seen what it happen. The other guests seemingly had no knowledge of the event. So up to this point, Jesus really is completely unknown. No one one would recognize him. He hasn't really begun any public teaching that we know of, and his miracles have been sort of kept under wraps. John 2 tells us that it was the Feast of Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover was Israel's highest day. It was their biggest day of celebration, a week of celebration. And so hundreds of thousands of Jews would pour into the city of Jerusalem. And we read that Jesus went there. So at this point, he's just a face in a sea of faces. He's just a Jewish man in a sea of Jewish men, looking much like his Jewish counterparts, and no reason to think that he's any different. And then he goes into the temple that day, but he does something different. He does something very radical that uh, Linne just, uh, just read for you, Leanne just read for you in the scripture today. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But I first want to set the table for you. I want you to, I want you to see where we're going with this and see why Jesus did that and, and everything that led up to it. And the best way for me to describe it, the best way to set the scene for you, is to tell you a story, a fictitious story. I'm making this up. However, I would suspect that what I'm about to tell you was repeated daily in the life of every Jew in first century Palestine, when Jesus lived, let's say there's a Jewish man. We'll give him the name Jacob. Jacob didn't think much of God growing up. He didn't just didn't think much of it. And but eventually he settles down and he moves to a small village in northern Israel. He marries a woman and they have two small children. We'll say that Jacob's a farmer. He has a a, a few acres of land, some livestock, and. Th- for him. And at some point in his young life, he just turns his attention to God as often happens to us. We get a little older and we start thinking about things. So let's say that Jacob begins to consider Yahweh. And he looks at his family, his, his wife and his children and his, his growing business and his fields, and he just feels thankful for all that God has given him. Soon his heart is just bursting for joy out of love for God, out of love for Yahweh who had blessed his life so richly. And he he just begins to think, to meditate upon God and God's Word. And each and every day, he just loves God more than the day before. And then one day he tells his wife, he says, you know, I, I just feel that I want to go to Jerusalem. And I want to worship Yahweh uh, just like my fathers did. I I want to worship Him and I want to tell God how much I love Him for what He's done in my life. So he packs up his wife and their two small children. He goes out to the field and finds his best sheep. He's going to sacrifice to God. Then they begin the journey. It takes about a week from northern Israel to get down to Jerusalem, stopping on the Sabbath to rest and to go no, no place that day. But eventually, Jacob and his wife, they reach Jerusalem, this bustling city. And he comes into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple, this massive complex, glorious in Every aspect. In fact, we're told that it was inlaid with gold so much that it was actually hard to look at on sunny days. The reflection was, was so bright. It was a beautiful structure. It was the heartbeat of Israel, the heartbeat of these people. And Jacob had come, heart full of love for God, wanting nothing to do but worship Him, to give Him His thanks for what he had done in his life so he takes his sheep and he goes into the temple and there he finds a a Levite attendant and he tells him my name is Jacob I've come from northern Israel I've come to worship my God I have brought my animal to sacrifice I just love Yahweh so much will you help me he says come with me and so he leads them to another room and there's a, a group of Levite priests and this man, the attendant, explains to the priest what Jacob is here for. And the priests come over and they say, so we need to look at your animal. So Jake, Jacob proudly and happily turns over his sheep. It's the best from his flock, a healthy specimen. The priests pour over the animal. and Soon Jacob can see them. They're shaking their head. They stand up and they come over to him and say, we're sorry, sir, but this sheep, has a blemish. You cannot sacrifice this to God. And Jacob is surprised. What do you mean? This is, this is the best that I have. I raised it myself. I know that it's perfect. It's, it's absolutely my very best, and I've come to give it to God. And they say, no, absolutely not. We found a blemish. Jacob said, there is no blemish. And he told, listen, we're priests. This is our job. We are telling you, you cannot sacrifice this animal. Jacob is stunned for a moment, and he says, Well, what can I do? I've come such a distance here today. And they say, Well, follow me. And the attendant takes him over to another room, and as they walk in, he can hear the moving of cows and the crying of sheep. The room is filled with animals. He walks in, and and the attendant goes to the man who's in charge of these animals and explains the situation. He's here for an animal. And he says, Jacob, all of these animals have been pre-approved by the priest. They're ready for sacrifice. They have been stamped. They're, they have been secured. These animals are primed for sacrifice. You just need to buy one of those. Jacob, well, it's not what I had intended. They're, they're not my animals, but okay. He reaches into his coat pocket, he pulls out a bag of coins and he spills them into his hands at which the attendant grabs him immediately. Wait, you can't bring Roman currency into this temple of God. What are you doing bringing this filthy Gentile money into the holy temple of God? Jacob said, well, that's the only thing I have. That's what we trade with. He said, put that away. Before you decide to buy a lamb here, you have to go over to the money changers' table. You have to take your filthy Roman coin and exchange it for something that's acceptable by God. Jacob's not feeling it now. He goes over to the money changers' tables and there's a long line of people waiting. He stands there with his lamb in tow, Finally, he gets up and he says again, my name is Jacob. I've come from northern Israel to worship my God. But I was told that my my lamb is is not worthy to be be sacrificed and I have to buy one, but I, I have the wrong kind of currency. The man sitting at the table doesn't care anything of what he said. He just grunts, how much do you have? He pours out his Roman coins there in the table. The attendant sitting at the table looks at the money, does a few mental calculations, and counts out a few temple coins to give him back. Jacob looks at that. He said, are, are you serious? I could go to any lender in any and all of Israel and get twice this amount of money for what I just gave you. This, this is not right. Man says, take it or leave it. Do you want to worship or not? Jacob takes the money takes his sheep in tow, and now goes back to the people who have the animals. And there's a line there. And he gets closer and closer, and finally he steps up, and he said, My name is Jacob. I've come to worship God. I have the coins. I'd like to purchase an animal, please. And an animal was brought to him, and yet Jacob, who's, who's a farmer, and he knows the animal, he looks at the sheep. It's It's half the size of his. It's scrawny. It doesn't even look right. He said, are you sure this animal is fit to be sacrificed? The man growls, of course it is. These sheep have been approved by the priests themselves. If you want to worship, you have to buy this sheep. So Jacob takes his bag of money and pours the coins out. He said, here it is. He said, that sheep's worth much more than that. Jacob said, that's all that I have. I brought my money to give and then the money changers took it all and this this is all that I have left. And he says, well then, I'll take the money and the sheep that you brought. You can have this one. Jacob turns over his lamb, turns over his money, takes the sheep by the tether, leads it to the priest. And turns it over. The priest says, I will make the sacrifice. You go offer your prayers to Yahweh. He had come so excited, heart filled with wonder and love. And now as he offers his prayers, he's not feeling it anymore. He had been taken. This was nothing more than a racket. This was this is a business. And the prayers that he offers to God are not at all what he had envisioned, not at all what he had rehearsed to say. In fact, intertwined in them, he can feel the disappointment, the sadness, and even a touch of anger over what had just happened here in the temple of God. He had come to worship taken from him. When the worship is over, he leaves and his wife and his children are standing outside and he takes them by the hand and he says, let's go home. Now that's a fictitious story, but I see it being played out every single day. And it's that kind of situation that Jesus walks into there in Jerusalem. He comes into this House of prayer, this magnificent building designed as a place of worship where people gather before their God. And what does he hear but animals and people bickering over money and a huge profit being made by some. And I can guarantee you, though the scripture doesn't say it, it angered him. It frustrated him. This was not what worship was designed to be. This is not what worship is called to be. This is wrong. So I see him in my mind's eye sitting down, taking perhaps a, a belt that was around his waist and maybe a few from his disciples. He braids them together. He, we read that he fashioned a whip. That's premeditation. You know, this is not Jesus just striking out angrily. This is not Jesus losing control or getting or just blowing his top. This is Jesus sitting down and thinking about what he was going to do, planning each step. He fashions a whip, then he stands up, and he walks to the center of all this activity, you can hear the whip cracking above his head and silence falling everywhere. And he shouts, this is a house of prayer. You have made it a place of merchandise, of business. And he begins to chase out the animals. He herds them together and he he whips above them and he runs a herd of animals and sets the doves free. And then he turns his attention on the money changers, those who are exchanging Gentile coin for temple money at a huge and handsome prophet, and he comes over to them next. You can see them jumping back from their tables, not knowing what to expect, and he flips the tables over, and the coins go pouring everywhere, and he chases them out as well. They had taken a place of worship. They turned it into a business, a profitable business, at the expense of people like our Jacob, who had come for one reason only, and that was to worship God. I believe that Jesus was quite frustrated and not just a little angry that day. Now, he's a nobody. Nobody knows Jesus yet. But his ruckus draws the attention of the leaders, the priests, maybe the Pharisees, and they came up to him, and they want to know by what authority he's doing this. Who said you could come in here? Show us a sign, if you're someone great, that we should believe you. You're calling this your father's house? Who do you make yourself to be? Jesus' response is, here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. They laugh at him. Now they know they have a crazy man. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will destroy it and build it up in three days? That's ludicrous. John, as he writes this gospel, puts his own commentary in it. John tells us that Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body, about himself. His challenge was, kill me in the three days, I can raise myself back up. That will be your sign. That will be your proof that I do have authority to come into this place and do what I just did and to say what I just said. Though I doubt that anyone knew what he meant at that particular moment. You know, when I read this story You can almost feel the indignation that Jesus must have felt as he walked in and saw what was taking place. It was awful. We cheer him on as he cleanses the temple. Now the temple is an interesting thing because Jesus said, destroy this and I'll build this temple back up. But he was not talking about the Jewish temple because God would leave that building and Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, this house has left you desolate. God has vacated. And in the New Testament, in the church era, we see what the fulfillment of the temple is. The temple is the body of Christ. That is the fulfillment of the temple. And those of us who belong to Jesus, we are the body of Christ. And the church is the body, not the building, not the structure around us. You are the body of Christ. You are the fulfillment of this temple as long as you are in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I say that because that makes, an, I believe, an interesting point. Sometimes we can get confused and we start to look at the church building as if it is something in particular sacred. Though we might love it, it's not necessarily so. What is sacred? To God, the Father is his Son's body, and we, the church, are the body of Christ. And I think it's important to remember that it's not the building, but it's the people, the people of God who are the temple of God. But I read this story of Jesus coming in and casting people out and, and causing all of this rucket, cleansing the temple. And I, again, we cheer him on because it, it needed that. They were getting in the way of people's worship. They they couldn't come to God any longer and worship Him truthfully and in spirit as Jesus wanted them. They were frustrated by the business. But I have to think sometimes, how about us today? Have have we maintained the purity of worship even today? Now, I'll tell you, I, I have nothing against orders of worship and 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 those things. Not at all. In a church, we sing some of the most beautiful hymns that have found their way to paper, inspired, I believe, by the Spirit of God, and it does us good to sing those together. But there is a temptation, I think, sometimes to come to worship and be so caught up in the ritual of it In the order of it, that we have lost sight of why we're even here. Of why we've come together. And heaven forbid, if someone were to come into our assembly and we want to force them into our way of worship, it's possible we would cloud the view, maybe even. And we chase them out of our pew. Uh, I want to call you to think, I I, want to challenge you, if nothing else, to think about why you're here. Well, why are we even here at all? Why do you come to Amity, UCC, Sunday after Sunday? Is it because there's nowhere else to go? Because your spouse is dragging you? I suppose that could happen. But I would hope I would hope that it's more than that. That you're a bit like our Jacob in our story, whose heart is filled with a love for God, who counts his blessings every day and says, I am amazed at what God has done for me. He has blessed me. I've eaten this week. I've slept in a warm bed every night I have people around me that I call friends, and I cherish that. And I want to come to church on Sunday, and I want to lift up my heart and my hand to God and to worship Him for what He has done. And I would like nothing better than for that to be your motive as you come here or anywhere on a Sunday. There's a temptation to fall into rituals, to fall into habits, to sit in the same pew every Sunday. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But you know how to mix it up sometimes. Come next week and sit somewhere else. You know, you you might be surprised with just how little of a thing that will do. You'll see another side of the preacher you never saw before. Yeah, You'll hear something differently. It'll all appear fresh. And sometimes little things like that can quicken our hearts and make us appreciate why we're here. I always look for fresh times of worship. I'll never forget, I was in my early 20s, and I was just really finding God. I mean, I, I grew up as a Christian, but in my early 20s, I gave my life to the Lord and was just really reading the Bible and studying and growing by leaps and bounds. And I went to a friend's Bible study. They had it at his house. And we were having this Bible study. There must have been 15 to 20 of us sitting around a living room. And I, I was just eating this up. And someone out of the blue said, hey, let's have communion. I thought, what? There's no preacher here to bless it. And I, I was I was thinking, can, I, can you have communion at a Bible study? Can you have communion in a person's house? Is this even, is this even allowed? What's going to happen? And so people got up in the window of the kitchen, and they came back with crackers and Kool-Aid. I have to tell you that was one of the most memorable times of communion I had ever taken. It was so fresh, and I appreciated every crumb of that cracker and the taste of that sweet Aid, because it just it, it showed me that i was sitting among a group of people who wanted to worship him and i was joined in on that i want to worship him i think john chapter 2 is a challenge for us it's a challenge to ask us what am i doing here why do I come? It's a challenge to count your blessings, to consider as you, before you walk in that back door on a Sunday morning, to ask yourself, what has God done for me? And how can I give him thanks this day? If we begin to do that, there'll be a stampede coming through that back door people will be anxious to get here. They they can't wait for the service to start, for the music to fill their ears and their hearts, and for the love to pour out before God. They will lift both their hearts and their hands before him and say, thank you, God. I want to encourage you to seek worship in its most purest form, to remove whatever has to be removed, and to find God and worship Him. Will pray? Gracious God, oh, you're so good to us. Your kindness just knows no bounds. Your gentleness, your care for us, Lord, is astounding. Your love, Lord, is beautiful. And we thank you, O God. And we confess, Lord, that at times we do get distracted, even at worship, and we've forgotten why we're here. O God, forgive us. Remind us. And stir us deeply to bring the worship that pleases you. We pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.